wanted to ask you a quick question. Um, yeah. You know, the, I, I saw this, uh, the Loyola coach, He uh, he's a black guy, quote unquote, but he, he's a part of the Black Coaches Association or something yeah. like that. Is that, you know, is that, that's dualistic, right? But at the same time, it's like necessary, right? Because, you know, they're minority and it helps to lift them up. And people still believe in black, right? So it's still helpful, but at the same time, it is dualistic. What do you think, any thoughts? Yeah, yeah, no doubt it is, and it's a concession to a working process. It's a a step toward achieving equality, which is a step. It's a step in the right direction. So equality, and then the flow. Yeah. But, you know, some people would say, like, that equality, like, let's not try to get equality. Just go straight to the flow, like any does. Well, that, that would be ideal, but that would be rare. So you would say that affirmative action programs that help, you know, bring more black coaches in, those are helpful. Brings oh, yeah. Yeah. What about, what about like, uh, you know, we're talking about this, like, idea of ageism, right? And in the, you know, in the Jewish culture... And the Orthodox Jews, like, if there's an old man who walks in, you're supposed to stand up. And they say, like, you know, the old man, he's, he's less, you know, attached to the body because he's older, so he has more wisdom. But you were saying that, like, not all old men are wise, though. So, I mean, is this ageist? Does that, does that, um, does that uh, perpetuate ageism and the idea that people are their bodies and the idea of discrimination and, and judging people based off their bodies or any thoughts? Well, you know, it's like, Anything it can it can be anything depending upon that perspective from which you approach it. So you can do it as a ritual, and maybe it's true. I mean, a lot of old people probably do have more wisdom and stuff. So maybe as a ritual, it's beneficial, like any does. Yeah, yeah. What do you think, any does? It's not because of age. You can grow old without growing wise. Any <laughs> does, No. So, so what do you think of that ritual? Is that something that should be maintained, or any does? Well, see, see, it's a way, it's a way of being respectful, mm-hmm. and it's always beneficial to be respectful. I mean, you, know, he, you don't you don't deserve respect because you're old. Like even in the Korean culture, like uh, there's rules. Like the younger person's not supposed to. Like uh, Kelvin played in the Korean basketball team, and he touched one of the older players on the head, like tapping on the head, like good job. And he got the older player got really mad at Kelvin because you know that's not acceptable in their culture. The older person yeah. has more, you know, what's the word like? More well, power, yeah, yeah. The, ass- the assumption, yes, the assumption is they deserve it because they're older. Hmm. See, that's that's dualistic. That's very, very rigid dualistic thinking. So that that maintains, and that that probably maintains the status quo a lot. Like that's like you know. Oh yeah. But but at the same time though, what about that as a ritual though? Well, see, see again, it's good for the young people. It's a it's a way of it's a ritual for mastering the art of being respectful. So is that something that could be maintained should be maintained or any thoughts? Yeah, it can serve a useful function. Yeah, it doesn't. But but it can no. be but it can be outgrown. Well, no, you just become respectful and and, and you're respectful regardless of the age. Yeah, regardless just, of the age. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, so so but yeah, so the idea is like, yeah, uh, it, it's like okay, I'm not special because of my age. We do, you know, but it's the same time be respectful to me. Like it's not because I'm like special because my body or anything or anything. Yeah, 
Yeah, not respectful to me. Just do yourself a favor. Be respectful. But I mean, that seemed a little bit rigid, like, you know, because if Kelvin could do that to like, you know, if you could do that to a younger person, that's not necessarily, you know, it's not necessarily disrespectful to tap someone on the head. Right. Right. Uh, but oh, it's tough. But yeah, it doesn't. No. All right. There's your Okay. Still not clear what, what correction you wanted to make to my thinking, but uh, that, that's what you stated was your reason for writing it. But it, it wasn't clear what you wanted to straighten me out on. Hey, it doesn't. No. Uh. So let's do. Uh, we're doing that. The Bible stuff. <clears throat> First, I want to check out this. Uh, tell me, tell me what you think of uh, <clears throat> of this thing on the Enlightenment. Ready? However admirable it appears to be, moves upon principles and things that are so very easy and simple. Although Descartes expressed admiration for Bacon, the empirical research advocated by Bacon was not compatible with the intellectual method to which Descartes and other pre-Enlightenment philosophers of the 17th century were committed. While Cartesian rationalism cleared away much philosophical lumber, it made little direct contribution to the positive understanding of the natural world. Descartes' vortices, for example, were a theoretical construct that could not survive critical examination. Descartes is notorious also for his attempt to apply the mechanical philosophy to animals. He thought it at least probable that they were machine-like, their movements being automatic actions and reactions, like the involuntary contraction of a muscle. Some of his... It does. I feel like that's what you think with the with the, like everything's energy and like everything's like you know they're, they're like machines and stuff. You said that about animals, like you didn't believe they have consciousness and stuff like that. I never thought everything was energy. Yeah, but when you're saying that, like you didn't think the animals had consciousness. Any thoughts? Well, they. Have, I, I don't remember what I said about it, but they certainly have awareness. They don't have consciousness like humans. Yeah, but they might, though. They, they might. Just they can't speak. Any thoughts? Well, I suppose it's possible. I doubt it, but I suppose it's possible. Followers went further, asserting that the howling of a beaten dog was a mere reflex by an automaton incapable of pain. This was a convenient doctrine for the heart. Is that what you think? not so you think it feels pain and stuff so then what's your point of saying it's not conscious like ours then hello well there, there, there's a whole hierarchy of consciousness it's all well, I guess it's it's of an impersonal or non-personal Nature. So, so if an animal if an animal can feel pain, then what's it any different than a human who feels pain? Well, there's no difference in terms of the pain. 
but it, but an animal doesn't tell himself a story about what happened to him. Yeah, but it, it might though. Animals have, get learned depression, and they do like dogs do and stuff. And but but the point is like that when you eat an animal, you don't have to torture it. That's that's the point. Like we, we we can acknowledge it has pain, and it might even have conscience like a human. It might not be able to speak, but but you don't have to. Yeah, and you can still eat it because it doesn't have like you know it it doesn't have as many you know. Uh, things that contribute in terms of like it, it can't think and, and, talk, and talk and stuff and, and produce art or anything like that but unless it's like an elephant but you don't have to put give any pain when you kill it for food any thoughts but not don't hunt for fun like any thoughts but I don't understand what the difference would be like it feels pain okay then how's it any different than a human feeling pain like any thoughts I mean, I see what you're trying to do. You're trying to say, like, okay, but yeah, we will be in the vegetarian. Yeah, I understand that some vegetarians are, are dicks. And they do it, and they have ulterior motives, like to be against Muslims or against Jews or against other people who eat meat. What are your thoughts? But could scarcely convince anyone with much experience of animals. It was duly mocked by Voltaire. He claims that animals are pure machines, which look for food without having an appetite, which always have organs of feeling in order never to experience the slightest sensation. Hey, Doc? No. Like, what, what, what are you doing right now? It's making a lot of noise. I'm sitting outside, and guy, my neighbor just started his lawnmower, so I'm going to move inside. Yeah, but, but, but you, see, you see what I'm saying? Um... Like you're saying, yeah, so animals have sensations, perceptions, you know, and stuff like that. So how's it any different than a human? Like, any thoughts? No, no thoughts. I don't know. Isn't that consciousness? I answered that. Isn't that consciousness? Yeah, yeah. So what were you trying to tell me then when you were saying that they're not conscious? You're just saying that humans, humans have, humans have different capabilities like speech and, and, you know, thought in terms of because of language but any thoughts that animals might not have but well, <laughs> I doubt very much that animals have the capacity to be conscious of our oneness with all I don't know maybe they, they are I didn't say they aren't I just said I doubt it possible but any thoughts no yeah, it might be more instinctual, but still, there's a consciousness there type of thing. Yeah, of course. That's what I said. Eventually, the shortcomings of the mechanical philosophy in explaining organic life would lead to its replacement by theories based on sensibility, which will be examined in Chapter 6. The empirical study of the world was the motor of the scientific revolution, which one historian of science has called the most profound revolution achieved or suffered by the human mind since Greek antiquity. The high points of this revolution include Nicholas Copernicus's pup. Hey, Duff. No. You see, but, but you know, like Copernicus discovers this theory and stuff, but they still didn't discover the quadrimile yet. They still didn't understand that, you know, they were trying to go away from God, but they didn't understand the quadrimile, that everything is God, you know, through this quadrant pattern, the mystical element. It really is just an expression of, of the tetragrammaton throughout. Any thoughts? Capacity to discern that either. Well, maybe the animal already knows that. I doubt it, but it's possible. I doubt it. Yeah, doesn't. 
application of the heliocentric system in 1543, Galileo's astronomical observations made from 1609 onwards with the help of the telescope, William Harvey's demonstration of the circulation of the blood in 1628, Christian Huygens' discoveries in mechanics, including the theory of the pendulum, 1656, Anthony van Leeuwenhoek's observation of animal culi with the microscope, made known in 1677. I mean, you know, there's additions. Like, it was kind of interesting, like, you know, like rabbis now... They had laws in the Torah that said you can't eat crawling things. So then, but then when they made microscopes, they saw well, every single food has crawling things on it, little microorganisms. So they're like, okay, can we not eat any food? Period. You know, any thoughts? Well, it served a useful function as a as a tradition or a, um, a restriction. Yeah, but, but then they say, like, you know, but, you know, I forget the, the word that the rabbi said was, like, you know, man man made God or, or God made man for, you know, for his own thing. Like, so they say, like, we don't have to put it to the extremes, like, based off of how you see, not with a microscope, but just how you naturally see, you know, eat that. You know, if there's anything crawling on it, then don't eat it. But, you know, microorganisms, you can't do anything about that. Like, ain't doesn't it? No. Let's go to a different one. This one's uh, this one's called uh, by Kendi. It's called "Stand from the Beginning." It's on uh, African slavery, right? The populace remained unruly, however, over the next few weeks. Cotton Mather was tapped to preach at a May convention called to settle the various demands for independence, military rule, or the old charter. He did not see democracy in the different demands. He saw pandemonium. I am old enough to cry peace, and in the name of God, I do it. He preached at the convention. The next day, town representatives voted to return to the old charter and reappoint the old governor, Simon Bradstreet. Peace or the old social order of the populace submitting to the ministers and merchants did not reappear as Mather had wished. Nearly everyone knew the Bradstreet government was unofficial as it had not received royal backing. When the king recalled Andros, Randolph, and other royalists in July 1689, it did not calm the masses. All confusion is here, one New Englander reported. Every man is a governor, another testified. The Declaration of Gentlemen and Merchants, most likely written by Mather, resembled another declaration by another prominent intellectual down in Virginia a century later. In the sixth article of 12, the writer declared, the people of New England were all slaves, and the only difference between them and slaves is they're not being bought and sold. In unifying... It does. <clears throat> New Englanders, Mather tried to redirect the resistance of commoners from local elites to British masters. And in actuality, Mather saw more differences between Puritans and slaves if his other published words in 1689 were any indication than between local New Englanders and their British masters. In the collection of sermons, small offers toward the service of the tabernacle in the wilderness, Mather first shared his racial views, calling the Puritan colonists the English Israel, a chosen people. Puritans must religiously instruct all slaves and... In- it does? No. Yeah, see, I, 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 th- this is just coming out of... Out of I don't know where I, I don't I don't understand the context in which he's speaking. Yeah, no, he's just talking uh, about the slavery stuff. Where? Children, the inferiors, Mather pleaded, but masters were not doing their job of looking after African souls, which are as white and good as those of other nations, but are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Cotton Mather had built on Richard Baxter's theological race concept. 
The souls of African people were equal to those of the Puritans. They were white and good. Mather wrote of all humans having a white soul the same year John Locke declared all unblemished minds to be white. Robert Boyle and Isaac Newton had already... And us? Well, I guess what they're trying to do is find a way of saying they're all the same. Popularized light as white. Huh? But they they used it in the context of of, um, of their current way of thinking, namely calling it white. Yeah. It's all the same. It's all good because it's all white. Mm -hmm. No, it's all good because it's all. Yeah. Yeah, that's it. Michelangelo had already painted the original Adam and God as both being white in the Vatican's Sistine Chapel. And for all these white men, whiteness symbolized beauty, a trope taken up by one of the first popular novels by an English woman. Published in 1688, Afra Baines' Orinoco or The Royal Slave was the first English novel to repeatedly use terms like white men, white people, and Negro. Set in the Dutch South American colony of Suriname, Orin It does? Orinoco is the story of the enslavement and resistance of a young English woman and her husband, Orinoco, an African prince. Orinoco's beautiful, agreeable, and handsome physical features looked more European than African. His nose was rising and Roman instead of African and flat, and his behavior was more civilized, according to the European mode, than any other had been. Bain framed Orinoco as a heroic, noble savage, superior to Europeans in his ignorance, in his innocence, in his harmlessness, and in his capacity for learning from Europeans. And in true assimilationist fashion, one of the characters insists, a Negro can change color, for I have seen him as frequently blush and look pale, and that as visibly as I ever saw in the most beautiful white. It does. Richard Baxter endorsed the London edition of Cotton Mather's other 1689 publication, his first book-length work, which became a bestseller, Memorable Providences, relating to witchcrafts and possessions. Baxter rejoiced, having influenced the young Mather at someone likely to prove so great a master building in the Lord's work. Mather's treatise, outlining the symptoms of witchcraft, reflected his crusade against the enemies of white souls. He could not stop preaching about the existence of the devil and witches, or perhaps the relentless of the commoners in the aftermath of the 1689 revolt. Hey, right, let's go to the Bible and the Psyche. That book that we were listening to. Ready? You ready, Gabby? Hello? Hey, Gabby, there? He's trying to say they're good, yeah, they're good guys and bad guys. Who was trying to say that? Cotton Mathers? Or? Yeah. Do you want to keep listening to that, or do you want to do the Bible and Psyche? Yeah, I, um, that's all kind of out of context. I don't know the context in which to think about it, so maybe we better go back. All right. This story contains all four features of what I have described elsewhere as the Job archetype. One, encounter with a superior being. Two, wounding. Three, perseverance. And four, divine revelation. This is the theme of encounter with the greater personality. What is particularly significant about Job's experience is that it occurs simultaneously with an encounter with the wrong shadow. Because of Jacob's fear of him, Esau becomes a stand-in for God. Jacob's guilty conscience imbues Esau with divine power. When Jacob meets Esau, he says, I have seen thy face as though I had seen the face of God. 
Genesis 33, 10. This means psychologically that a crime against the shadow is also a crime against the self and may activate the self in its avenging form. Hey, Dust? No. Now, I, I call the Job archetype for simplicity, contest, defeat, lamentation, and rebirth. That's the cycle. But Dr. Edinger uh, refers to it a little differently. He says, encounter with a superior being, wounding, defeat, perseverance, which is lamentation and meditation on what's going on, and divine re revelation. That's rebirth into the next thing. And that's a very important archetype in Jungian psychology. This motif may manifest either externally or internally. Externally, if I commit a wrong against another person, I will fear his desire for revenge, which comes from the self. Vengeance is mine and re requital, says Yahweh, Deuteronomy 33:35. Similarly, internally, if I have wronged the shadow within, it is a violation of totality and may arouse the vengeance of the self against the ego. To encounter such a reaction and endure it without succumbing... Hey, does? No. ...to either defensive hostility or despair corresponds to Jacob's wrestling with the angel until it blesses him. Since we hate... Do you think that has to do with, like, the shadow and the ego like he's talking about, or... Hey, does? No. Again, I'm not... I'm still not... E in tune with what's being talked about. How about Jacob and Esau? Yeah. It does? No. What we fear, Jacob may have had a wrestle with his rage at Esau before he could arrive at a conciliatory attitude, which would allow him to send Esau propitiating gifts. Or perhaps Jacob was obliged to wrestle with his terror. What was the significance of him sending the gifts before he does? Well, he's it trying to get him to be on his side. See, I'm a good guy. I'm not. I'm not out to get you. But that was a, it. Was probably a, a discerning thing to do, right? Probably a like good idea, right? Like living within the interpersonal world, or. It could be, but I've always interpreted it as a, as a, a strategy for getting what he wanted. Yeah, that's it. No. Until he could extract from the courage, from it, the courage needed to meet Esau. Intense effects of all kinds come from the self and have been destructive and, <laughs> and have destructive consequences unless they are mediated by a conscious ego. Jung writes... The god appears at first in hostile form, as an assailant with whom the hero has to wrestle. This is in keeping with the violence of all unconscious dynamism. Jung writes, sorry, I'm having little spells of this personal hypnosis. Not easy to read these books because of that. Jung writes, the god appears at first in hostile form as an assailant with whom the hero has to wrestle. This is in keeping with the violence of all unconscious dynamism. In this manner, the god manifests himself in this form. He must be overcome. This hey, Doss. No. What, what do you think that interpretation, like the unconscious dynamism and stuff, and that's what it was like? Hey, Doss, or is that, is that stretching it? And how do you see that? Hey, Doss. Yeah. 
See, I don't understand all of Jung's con uh, um, his his interpretations of, the, of that whole idea. But see, I always saw it as as uh, Jacob wrestling with between his uh, ego self and his higher self. That that's what the wrestling was all about. Yeah, thoughts? No. Struggle has its parallel in Jacob's wrestling with the angel at the ford Jabbok. The onslaught of instinct then becomes an experience of divinity, provided, provided that the man does not succumb to it and follow it blindly, but defines his humanity against the animal nature of the divine power. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. Yep. <laughs> yes, Carl. <laughs> um, unquote. In another place, you And it does? Yeah. Oh, see, the, 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 the ego self cannot survive. Mm. No one looks upon the face of God and lives as an ego. Yeah, it does not says Jacob wrestled with the angel and came away with a dislocated hip but by his struggle prevented a murder what does this mean I think of three possibilities one the angel might have murdered Jacob if he hadn't resisted this would correspond to Jacob's suicide out of guilt and terror two Jacob in his rage might have murdered Esau and three Esau in his vengeance might have murdered Jacob if Jacob had remained caught in a power conflict with him or Jacob in his guilty fear might also have identified with the victim and thereby constellated his own execution. He does. Another aspect of Jacob's ordeal is mentioned by Jung, quote, a contemporary Jacob would find himself willy-nilly in possession of a secret that could not be discussed and would become a deviant from the collective. Encounter with the self is necessarily a secret. Such things are not communicable in their concrete particulars. The secret he must carry creates the individual creates the individual as a unique being separate from the collective, but at the same time, it is a wound like that of Philatetes, which alienates him painfully from others. According to the apocryphal book, Wisdom of Solomon, it was wisdom that saved Jacob. Quote, wisdom delivered her servants from their ordeals. The virtuous man fleeing from the rage of his brother, Jacob, was led by her along straight paths. She showed her, she showed him the kingdom of God and taught him the knowledge of holy things. It does. Yeah, that was, as I understand it, the awakening of his true self. It doesn't. And why wisdom? No. Why, why, why wisdom? A whole new way of thinking. A whole new way of seeing things. It does. She guarded him closely from his enemies and saved him from the traps they set for him. In an arduous struggle, she awarded him the prize to touch him, to touch him that piety is stronger than piety. Sorry. I'll read that last uh, quatrain again. As I sort of went out again. She guarded him closely from his enemies and saved him from the traps they set for him. In an arduous struggle, she awarded him the prize to teach him that piety is stronger than all. Wisdom 10, 9 through 14. Now, I just want to observe that the king... Is this too fast? Yeah. 
in the version of the Bible does not contain the Book of Wisdom, but the New American Bible, which was used by the Catholic Church, does contain the Book of Wisdom. So um, I now have three Bibles that I refer to. I actually have four Bibles, but I have three that I regularly refer to. One is the King James Bible, uh, which is basically a tr uh, Protestant Bible, as I understand it. Um, one is the New American Bible, which I understand to be a Catholic Bible. And I have the Jerusalem Bible. And I'm not sure what the bias in that is. And I also have uh, the New Testament of Proverbs that's passed out by the Gideons at American uh, County Fairs when we have them. The word here translated piety is rendered godliness and devotion to God. In other versions, the Septuagint uses esabia reverence for the gods, which is the equivalent to the Hebrew fear of the Lord. This passage tells us that wisdom was with Jacob during his wrestling with the angel, and he was victorious by virtue of a religious attitude. The consequence of the encounter was the transformation of Jacob, indicated by his new name, Israel. Okay, I'm just going to take a drink here, and then there's another section of this. Joseph and his brothers. Throughout the sacred history of Israel, the nation as a whole has been carrier of God consciousness. Initially, this consciousness was carried by individuals, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. However, Jacob had 12 sons by four mothers, and these 12 became the progenitors of the 12 tribes, whereby the religious task was transferred to the collective. Nevertheless, the divine prerogative was not distributed equally among the 12. We learn that Yahweh was with Joseph, Genesis 39.2, and his father, also singled him out for special favor and gave him a special coat of long, with long sleeves, Genesis 37.3, coat of many colors, a long-sleeved robe. It was a garment reaching to the ankles and wrists and worn by persons of distinction. The ordinary coat had no sleeves and reached only to the knees. As so often happens, the personal and archetypal factors that determine one's destiny here overlap. Yahweh was with Joseph, and he was his father's favorite. Some schools of psychotherapy will claim that the former is only a consequence of the latter. However, the facts of the psyche are better served by the alternative emphasis, Joseph was his father's favorite because Yahweh was with him. The robe... Hey, does. Well, see, I've always understood this as the, the, the dangerous consequences of being treated as special with special rec recognition and as superior, mm -hmm. that there are always dangerous consequences for that. Yeah. That's what the, the special robe um, signifies, symbolizes. Like, like what? Like what? What do you mean? Like what? Dangerous consequences. Like what? Well, see, see, remember how his, his brothers treated him. Yeah. Well, I, I would say that the, the only danger would be uh, this idea that you like Kanye West, like he says, like I'm a genius, and then he starts to think like, oh, well, so I'm special, and and anybody else who isn't at my level must not be a genius. And it has nothing to do with environment, and it has nothing to do with, you know, it, yeah, it, it might be because he has like a high IQ or has synesthesia or something, or I don't know, or has particular gifts, or whatever. But, but you know, he says like I'm a genius, and, and, and people who are successful they deserve it, and people who aren't, it's because it's because they don't think like I do. I'm special, and then, uh, and then you become like a conservative right winger, and then you start to blame all the victims, and you, and, and anyone who's doing good, you look highly. Any thoughts of that? Yeah, well, that, that's 
that's what happens. That's that's the reason it stirs up animosity toward you. No, but that doesn't have Start to happen. No, nope, but that doesn't have to happen. Like when when I was, you know, I I I did huge stuff and all that. And at first, I wasn't like that. I I was unrecognized. Don't blame the victim, and all that. And then I thought to think that you kind of made me that way when I thought that you were blaming the victim and stuff. But then I realized, okay, never mind. But uh, that you didn't really necessarily see it that way, except you didn't understand what happened with me with the shootaway and all that. It doesn't matter. But yeah, and then the other thing is like that that could be one thing that happens with it. But then yeah, is is a person's like that, and then also uh, yeah, it's it's like you know if, if a mom tells her child like oh you have a high IQ, you're a genius, then the child cares more about looking good as opposed to working hard. But if the mom mom just says hey it doesn't matter what your IQ is, just work hard, he does better. Like any thoughts? Yeah. It's a better strategy. That's a better m- mode of being and mode of seeing. Yeah, does it? No. Of distinction is an important image. It corresponds to the robe of glory in the Gnostic hymn of the, hymn of the pearl. It is the garment of the self, and wearing it carelessly or unconsciously signifies ego self identity. For that reason, Joseph must be stripped of it. Identification with his special status is also indicated by his dreams, which express both the fact of his election and his inflation. By virtue of his special relation... It does? No. ...to the self, Joseph is superior to his brothers, but the ego's identification with that superiority is exceedingly dangerous. It constellates hostility in the unconscious and in the outer environment, a hostility calculated to correct the one-sidedness of the ego. This psychological flat this psychological fact is expressed in the legends. There Joseph is described as carrying false reports of wrongdoing against his brothers. Quote, he charged them with casting their eyes upon the daughters of the Canaanites and giving contemptuous treatment to the sons of the handmaids of Bilah and Zilpah. Hey, thus? No. Whom they called slaves. For these groundless accusations, Joseph had to pay dearly. He was himself sold as a slave because he had charged his brethren with having called the sons of the handmaids slaves. And Potiphar's wife cast her eyes upon Joseph because he threw the suspicion upon his brethren that they cast their eyes upon the Canaanitish women. Unquote. Joseph showed very poor judgment in recounting his dreams to his brothers. In part, the dreams must have compensated for a conscious attitude of inferiority since he was next to the youngest of the twelve and something of a sissy, according to legend. The dream of the sheaves, Genesis 37-7, hey, thus. suggests that the superiority of Joseph's harvest, the creative fruits of his life, will be acknowledged. The dream of the sun, moon, and stars, Genesis 37-39, Genesis 37-9, is given a reductive, personalistic, Adlerian, well, you know, Joseph's really a lot like me, too, because, like, I discovered theory of everything. He said he had this great dream, and it, you know, and, and, and now it's recognized, you know, people recognize it now. Like, kind of what happened with Joseph, like, hey, does it? Interpretation by his father, an appropriate rebuke for Joseph's naivety in revealing the dream. Joseph was sold as a slave into Egypt by his brothers, this being, according to legend, the beginning of the Egyptian bondage, with Joseph the first to be subjected to it. Tertullian says this event is the prefiguration of Christ. Quote, he suffered, per- he suffered persecution at the hands of his brethren and was sold into Egypt as a- on account of the favor of God, just as Christ was sold by Israel. And therefore... 
according to the flesh by his brethren when he betrayed when he is betrayed by Judas. Unquote. The image of bondage is itself an aspect of individuation symbolism. One of the effects of the counter with the self is. What do you think about the idea of individuation symbolism? Any thoughts? No. Ego's loss of willpower. It becomes a servant to the greater personality. Joseph's descent into Egypt begins the strange, enduring theme of Israel and Egypt. For Israel, Egypt is alternately a place of security and nourishment and a place of bondage. The pattern repeats itself in the life of Christ. No sooner is the Christ child born than he must seek refuge in Egypt, later to return and fulfill the pre-established pattern. Out of Egypt have I called my son, Hosea 11, 1, Matthew 2, 15. The symbolism of Egypt also plays a prominent role in Gnosticism. Hey, Beth? Yeah, was well, see, my understanding of the symbolism of Egypt is that we're all born into an impersonal and then an interpersonal world from which we need to escape. Otherwise, we remain in bondage. Yeah, does it? No. It's like interpersonal soap opera until you can start to just go all out and just recognize, okay, it doesn't matter about my biology or any of that. Just you know, just go all out. And, uh, yep. and, 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 uh, and oneness consciousness, you know, where you don't blame the victim. You're not like, oh, I'm superior. You're inferior. Oh, oh that's a woman. That's a man. Oh, that's a gay guy. No. Any thoughts on that? <clears throat> you got it. Quote, Egypt is a symbol for the material world. Sorry. Egypt as a symbol for the material world is very common in Gnosticism and beyond it. The biblical story of Israel's bondage and liberation lent itself admirably to spiritual interpretation of the type the Gnostics liked. But the biblical story is not the only association which qualified Egypt for its allegorical role. From ancient times, Egypt had been regarded as the home of the cult of the dead and therefore the kingdom of death. This and other features of Egypt's re Egyptian religion, such, such as its beast-headed gods and the great role of sorcery, inspired the Hebrews and later the Persians with a particular abhorrence and made them see in Egypt the embodiment of the demonic principle. The Gnostics then turned this evaluation into their use of Egypt as a symbol for this world, that is, the world of matter, of ignorance, and of perverse religion. All ignorant ones, i.e. those lacking Gnosis, are Egyptian states of birth. Sporadic dictum quoted by Hippolytus. Hey, Russ. No. Generally, the symbols for world can serve also as symbols for the body, and vice versa. Regarding Egypt, the Parate, to whom it is otherwise the world, also said that the body is a little Egypt. Similarly, the Nassims. End quote. Hey, Russ. No. Since the body is Egypt. <clears throat> more pages <laughs> as the holier world descent into egypt signifies incarnation or coagulatio a necessary state step in realization of the psyche at an early stage of development egypt serves as a nourishing protective mother later she becomes bondage and tyranny from which to escape joseph's encounter in general hey, yeah well she serves a useful function and if you stay there you remain dependent upon the, that protective enclosure, then you're in bondage. Mm -hmm. But it's, it's a protective enclosure, you don't want to deny it. Like, interpersonal, you you want to you wanna be effective within interpersonal and everything. Like, it does. Right. Yeah, you, you 
need to benefit. It serves a useful function. Magnificent in its accomplishments. Genesis yeah. 39 with Potiphar's wife, named Zeluca, in legend, is particularly re relevant to the symbolism of Egypt. Zeluca corresponds to Egypt and her attempted seduction of Joseph corresponds to the necessary but dangerous involvement of the soul with matter. This is an archetypal theme and hence has parallels in other mythical contexts. An Egyptian folktale, the story of two brothers from about 1225 BC, <clears throat> describes a similar occasion on which a conscientious younger brother is falsely accused of a proposal, proposal of adultery by the wife of his elder brother for whom the younger brother worked. This story ends by the younger brother's castrating himself and the older brother's killing his wife. The pattern appears again in the Greek myth of Hippolytus and Phaedra, in which Hippolytus is killed by the bull from the sun. <coughs> Psychologically, these myths... Hey, Doc? No? ...to picture the naive and innocent young ego being lured by woman, world, and matter to relate to her as a fully adult male, not a subordinate. It is a moment of great danger in which criminality and heroism, wisdom and cowardice, are inextricably mixed. To succumb to the seduction may lead to death or to maturity. To virtuously flee from the dangerous invitation may also lead to death, hippolytus, or arrested development, story of the two brothers, or fulfillment of one's highest potential, Joseph. Joseph had a special relation to the unconscious as indicated by his ability to interpret dreams. The nature of the dreams that he was called upon to understand is also informative. While in prison, he was presented with the dreams of the royal cupbearer and the royal baker. One presaged, one presaged pardon the other execution, that is, the opposites. Again, with Pharaoh's dreams, seven fat cows and seven lean cows, seven fat ears and seven lean ears, feast and famine. He is confronted with the problem of the opposites. In order to achieve a conscious relation to the self, one is obliged to integrate the opposites. Hey, Doc. No. Do you think that's true? Some famine or like that? I don't know. Since Yahweh is with Joseph, he must endure the activated opposites. The paradoxical nature of God tears him asunder into opposites and delivers him over to the, a seemingly insoluble conflict. To the extent the opposites are reconciled, the inner authority of the self takes control of one's life. The achievement of that inner authority is indicated by the fact that Joseph becomes the agent of Pharaoh. I'm sorry, Joseph becomes the regent of Pharaoh. <clears throat> he does. He becomes the lot of Pharaoh? The regent. Regent. Yeah. He does. I guess that's a representative. I guess that's what yeah. that means. Reading Paul. I'm just curious, Nunzio Alfonso, are, are you a Nunzio or not? Nunzio sounds like a, you know, what, what, religious name, like religious name. Rearing in the public, this is our show, and I'll see you in the Break out, 
they might add to the number of our enemies. They might take arms against us and so escape out of the country. Accordingly, they put slave drivers over the Israelites to wear them down under heavy loads. In this way, they built the store cities of Pithom and Ramses. Okay, thus. Does that remind you of, like, the black slaves in America? Like, ain't us? <clears throat> yeah, I hadn't thought about it, but yeah. These for Pharaoh. But the more they were crushed, the more they increased and spread. And men came to dread the sons of Israel. The Egyptians forced the sons of Israel into slavery and made their lives unbearable with hard labor, work with, work with clay and with brick, all kinds of work in the field. They forced on them every kind of labor. So that was Exodus 1, verses 8 through 14. This describes the psychological state of the individual who is about to be hit with the imperative of individuation. Egypt under the Pharaoh represents a certain stage of psychological development in which the ego, in identification with the superior function, is centered in the principle of power and willful control. The Israelites signify the other. Hey, bud. No. A new and different standpoint, which is emerging from the unconscious and requiring attention. This new factor allied with an inferior function is multiplying in a way that threatens the status quo. Therefore, repressive measures are instituted. All male Hebrew infants are to be killed. This act of repression against the emerging unconscious content provokes a reaction from the unconscious, the birth of the hero. The hero is a figure lying midway it does. between the ego and the self. What do you think about that idea like the reaction of the unconscious and all that? Like any thoughts? To me, it just seems like it's that continuing wrestling between the ego self and the, and the true self. I want to repeat that because we keep hearing over and over again about the hero's journey. And so I want you to think of the hero's journey when we're thinking about this. The hero is a figure lying midway between the ego and the self. It can perhaps best be defined as a personification of the urge to individuation. The story of Moses' birth follows closely the characteristic pattern of the myth of the birth of the hero. The chief features of this myth are, one, birth occurs under adverse circumstances. Two, the authorities seek to kill it. Three, the infant is exposed or abandoned, often in water. Four, it is rescued, usually by lowly people and accompanied by marbles. Five, there is a double set of parents, royal ones and lowly ones. These features all apply to hey, the myth of Moses' birth and refer psychologically to the vicissitudes surrounding the birth of the urge to individuation. The established authority, inner and outer, is always opposed. The individual is thus exposed to the experience of exile or alienation and receives help only from the lowly aspects of the psyche, which are open to the transpersonal dimension. The canonical sources say nothing about Moses' youth and education. Hey, yeah, why do you think that the sources don't say anything about his youth and education, Adas? Well, I don't know, no particular, I don't have any insight on that. I mean, I think that maybe this idea like his, his wisdom didn't come from himself or anything, it came from God or whatever, so it's like the idea of, you know, don't take credit, but, or like, you know, I'm not a genius, I'm not superior or anything, but just go all out or something. This gap is filled by legend, one of which is particularly pertinent. 
According to Philo, Moses quickly surpassed the knowledge of his teachers, anticipating all their lessons by the excellent natural endowments of his own genius, so that everything in his case appeared to be a recollecting rather than a learning. That's kind of like my case when I was in like a kid growing up and everything. Teachers are always just astounded, just amazed, and in awe, you know? Any thoughts? very clear this echoes plato's famous idea as expressed in the phaedo quote if we acquired knowledge before we were born and lost it at birth but afterwards by the use of our senses regained the knowledge which we had previously possessed would not would not the process which we call learning really be recovering knowledge which is our own and should we be right in calling this recollection or recollection <coughs> unquote any thoughts This doctrine is an intuitive philosophical anticipation of what we now know to be the collective unconscious or objective psyche. Applied to Moses, the process of learning by recollection means that individuation involves the discovery of one's innate wisdom and pattern of being. The Bible picks up the story of Moses as an adult. At age 40, according to Acts 7:23, when he kills an Egyptian slave driver, Although reared as Egyptian royalty, Moses belongs to the enslaved race of Hebrews, and his allegiance manifests in this impulsive act. It is a primitive, unmediated expression of individuation energy. Sorry. It is a primitive, unmediated expression of individuation energy, the initial manifestation of his call. That's call in quotation marks. Hey, thus? It's like his call, it's like his destiny. He's a part of the unconscious. He's, he's an archetype. It's not like he's, that's, that's that idea of destiny, you know, like that the unconscious and the play has to play itself out in a certain way, you know. And, and, any thoughts? Yeah. The murder leads Moses to his personal exodus, his flight into the wilderness, where he will meet Yahweh. One might say that the murderous rage which overcame Moses at the sight of the slave driver's cruelty was Yahweh's wrath which took possession of Moses and acted through him. It was Yahweh who killed the Egyptian and at the same time brought about the circumstances which led to Moses' later encounter with Yahweh. Those destined... Hey, thus? You think that's true, or...? Well, that was all a part of the unfolding of his destiny. But I mean, was was that bad when he killed the guy? Like, was that anger, or was that, you know, God? Like, any thoughts? Was that, like, inspired or something? Yeah. Yeah, it's... It's always a puzzlement to like, me. Like, like, I, like, I always felt like all the times when bad things happened to me, they were, like, a lot of times it was actually good. Like, I got angry, and then you stopped teaching me for a little bit. But then during that time, I would make a discovery, you know what I mean? And and then I'd be, and it's almost like those times were necessary for, you know, something different. You know, any thoughts? Yeah, they always serve a useful function. They, they can always serve a useful function. We often have the problem of intense energy eruptions in youth. That was true of Jung. The constellated self will not endure bondage or constriction. Yet in extremis, it will resort to crime. In fact, actual criminality can be considered a perverted and in actual criminality can be considered as perverted individuation. This aspect of Moses it does. It's recognized in legend, which asserts that he was of an originally evil disposition, covetous, haughty, sensual, in short, disfigured by all possible ugly traits. It was... <clears throat> hey, does. 
through strong will, character, and severe discipline that he transformed his disposition into its opposite. It does? Yeah, I'll, I'll listen. It does, eh? No. Yeah, listen to this, the rabbi talk about it, like Like Michael Jordan, you know, he didn't say this, but Michael Jordan, like he started off cut from the team, but then he became the best. And like Moses, he started off with these bad dispositions, and then he became the best. Like he was talking about these other like really famous rabbis and stuff, like, you know, these, these legends. Like one of the rabbis, he, he failed his first exam to get into the yeshiva or something, and then, or whatever it was, and then and then he and then he was found like the next day like studying and studying, and then the owner of the yeshiva was like, "Hey, you know what are you doing all day?" And the guy was like, "Oh, I'm just reading this stuff because I you know didn't get accepted." And he was like, "Oh, you're accepted. I'll, I'll accept you." And he became like the biggest rabbi, you know. So the question is like, did, does it come from them, or maybe maybe actually the first like not getting accepted, maybe like Moses wasn't accepted or something like the first not getting accepted fueled like a drive to put in extra effort and extra you know maybe maybe that you know that being spurned like with michael jordan that being spurned that fueled the desire to put in so much effort and it's like oh it's it's not that i'm i'm innately the best like no 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 it's not thinking about oh i'm a genius no now they're they're, they're not the ones like so then but they are already might have a genius aspect of them but regardless they're not told that, and then it fuels the the notion that they have to put in the most effort, and they know what it's like to be put put thrown to the side and, and discounted and stuff. Even David, like David, they say before he became king, like he his family disowned him, kind of like he was like out with the sheep, and they didn't they when Nathan came, they didn't even show David to him, right? Maybe that like this idea that it didn't come from him, but his natural stuff. Maybe they, he did have a natural stuff that was overseen, but it was that effort that he decided to put in because he felt the you know what it was like to be spurned and stuff. Like, any thoughts of that? Yeah, that's very clear. It's like Shawshank. Get busy living or get busy dying. Or get busy telling yourself a story and making up excuses. Or get busy um, taking up your bed and walking. Yeah, it um, So, that's always the major turning point. And, and those are major decisions that, people make in their life so, so a lot of people would say though like you know god in the bible it's always like he chooses the worst right like jephthah he was the one who was kicked out and then he becomes the leader and stuff and and it's idea like maybe they came from slaves or, or canaanite serfs even the israelites and stuff and this idea like it, it really overturns the stuff like oh wait moses the, the guy who's like you know who has all these terrible dispositions he becomes a hero like what like even I would say, like, me, in my case, like, people would be like, what? They, that guy who did that bad stuff in high school, which I didn't even do, you know? And, you know, he wasn't even that, you know, with the, with the basketball, you know, you, you, people thought he was going to be so good, but then he ended up sucking, well, because of the shooting machine, but they didn't know that, you know? But then this guy, me, the guy that you would be like, oh, whatever, maybe, you know, whatever, that guy. But, I mean, a lot of girls, I have fan, club, fan clubs of girls, like Joseph had fan clubs of girls. But, you know, regardless, then I ended up, Maybe because of that, I ended up putting in so much effort and seeking and looking for a deeper, deeper truth, you know, break free of existence almost, break free of this material interpersonal world to the truth world. Any thoughts? Yeah. Yeah, see, it's my understanding that God chooses everyone, not just the, the marginalized, but he chooses everyone and each of us then has a choice to make. Whether we want to obey the order we depend on or whether we want something else. Yeah, does it? No. After living many years in exile, Moses encounters Yahweh. Quote, 
Moses was looking after the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, priest of, Midi of Midian. He led his flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of Yahweh appeared to him in the shape of a flame of fire coming from the middle of a bush. Moses looked. There was the bush blazing, but it was not being burnt up. It must go and look. I must go and look at this strange sight, Moses said, and see why the bush is not burnt. Now Yahweh saw him go forward to look, and God... Hey, that's... I was reading today in the in this Torah thing that that the bush that Moses saw was was a thorn bush. It was a thorn bush that was burning. Any significance in that that you can think of? No. Called to him from the middle of the bush, Moses. Moses, he said, "Here I am." He answered, "Come no nearer." He said, "Take off your shoes, for the place on which you stand is holy ground. I am the God of your father." He said. Here he does. Well, I mean, you can mention your thoughts, like any input you can put in. Like, I remember you used to say that the holy ground, you saw it because everything is energy. or But, you know, you see, regardless if it's true or not, the, the metaphorical aspect of the ephemerality that, you know, there's not there's not material. So you could fall through the ground. Like, any thoughts that? <clears throat> so going beyond the interpersonal, physical. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this, Moses covered his face, afraid to look at God. And Yahweh said, I have seen the miserable state of my people in Egypt. I have heard their appeal to be free of their slave drivers. Yes, I am well aware of their sufferings. I mean to deliver them out of the hands of the Egyptians and bring them out of that land to a land rich and broad, a land where milk and honey flow, the home of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now the cry of the sons of Israel has come to me, and I have witnessed the way in which the Egyptians oppressed them. So come, I send you to Pharaoh to bring the sons of Israel, my people, out of Egypt. Moses said to God, Who am I to go to Pharaoh? No. Bring the sons of Israel out of Egypt. I shall be with you, was the answer. And this is the sign by which you shall know that it is I who have sent you. After you have led the people out of Egypt, you are to offer worship to God on this mountain. Then Moses said to God, I am to go then to the sons of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. But if they ask what is his name, what am I to tell them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. This, he added, is what you must say to the sons of Israel. I am sent to you. And God also said to Moses, you are to say to the sons of Israel, Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has to you this is my name for all time by this name i shall be invoked for all generations to come exodus 3 1 through 15 this is a classic image of an encounter with the self yeah probably One or more of its various features come up in dreams. Fire is a frequent synonym for the divine. It pertains to calcinatio and the alchemical symbolism of sulfur. It signifies effects and desirousness, intense libido manifestations, which are not integrated into the ego and hence have a transpersonal quality. Accord Any thoughts? No. We think about the idea of the libidinous qualities in the fire and everything. Any thoughts? No. And they talk about that like with the kundalini, like it's like representing like a fire in, in a snake and it's related to sex, right? 
libidinal aspect of it. But do you think that that's also related to the bird, the bush? Any thoughts of it? never made that connection before even like you know the the pubic hair is like a bush you know yeah the gospel of thomas jesus said he who is near me is near the fire the unconsuming nature of the fire emphasizes its transpersonal nature it is desire that is not quenched by personal satisfactions the desire Jung speaks of as a thirsting for the eternal libido is recognized as transpersonal any thoughts See, you would see the libido as impersonal, but they're relating it to the transpersonal. Like, any thoughts of it? Yeah, that's very interesting. Yeah. And that's kind of like what I related to in the quadrant stuff with knowledge being the fourth quadrant related to sex, which is transpersonal. Like, any thoughts? You, you see that as, in, you see that as yeah. impersonal, but, but there, you know, there's a, it's a paradox. It's transpersonal, and it, could, and it can be, you know, self-confirmatory and self-transcendent. Any thoughts? possible succeeds in disidentifying from it then what one desire but like even if like the libido if it's related to like energy like the energy running all of existence like you know reich said there's the organ it's an orgasmic that's a unifying principle and maybe that's that's like the energy of the will like chopin and i were talking about that's like that's moving and driving existence like any thoughts of that So certainly driving the animal existence because think about it what, what's a common element within the animal existence or the creature existence is this libidinal sex drive. Any thoughts? Yeah. Energy. The desire, the desire to perpetuate your genes. And it's not a desire to perpetuate your genes. It's like a feeling. It's a because a lot of creatures aren't conscious of that, but it's like a, a driving force, whether they're con or conscious of perpetuating their genes or not. Like any thoughts? perceived as my pleasure my power my ambition ambition but rather a, a task imposed by the self a task is what yahweh imposes on moses considering this i mean just think about it like animals the animals know like do they need to go to a sex ed class no they just see a what they see a female and they're just like instinctually go and screw it like how do they even know that you know but they just do it it's like some sort of driving force instinctual elemental you know basic aspect of existence like any thoughts yeah it's all a part of the the flow yeah, does it does no. of fire out of which the assignment comes moses moses's task is to follow his libido the fulfillment of this libido perceived i mean the other day you asked like what what the significance of fire was and we talked about like energy and stuff but now they're relating the fire to libido which is interesting you know some people worship fire like gerastrians like any thoughts it's like flowing, but it's also, it's flowing like water, but it's also solid like earth. You know, it's kind of like that transcendental. Uh, personally, is his sacred task of self-realization. According to legend, Moses' encounter with Yahweh in the burning bush was preceded by a dream in which Metatron, the angel of the divine face or presence, conducted him on a tour of the glories of the seven heavens and the horrors of Gehenom. Heaven and hell are the two aspects of the transpersonal libido. Energy is eternal delight, but also God has a terrible double aspect. A sea of grace is met by a seething lake of fire. An important feature of the theophany is the revelation of the divine name, YHWH, a 
Perfect. Leave it if, think of, if you think of just the nature of sex, how it can be both great, like so pleasurable and awesome, but also terrible. Like after you do it, then you might be regret it. It can get you killed by people who are jealous. Get you S, you people get STDs, and it has like the it's it's so paradoxical. Sex, like any thoughts? Yeah, that's interesting. It derives from an archaic form. And that's making you think of that idea of heaven and hell that he was just talking about. You know, any thoughts? Yeah. Of the well, that's probably about enough for today. It does you know? I am. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, does it? No. All right. Okay. Later.